0: In the past, many clinicians associated head and neck cancer with a clinical scenario of patients with extensive alcohol and tobacco use and associated serious comorbidities, but an increasing number of younger, healthier patients are now being diagnosed. I met with Dr. Marshall Posner to discuss these important trends and key recent clinical trial results that have significantly improved the prognosis of these patients, particularly those with locally advanced disease. Dr. Posner began our conversation by commenting on current demographic
1: trends. The demographics are actually changing quite radically. In the past, Most head and neck cancer was associated both with heavy alcohol and smoking intake. There were a few cases in younger people which were cryptic in their origin and tended to be fairly devastating. And of course, there's an older group of people who have pre malignant lesions that develop into cancer that are probably related to environmental carcinogenesis or low grade viral infections that they've had. But what's happened over the last decade and a half is a marked increase in base of tongue and tonsil cancer in young non smokers, non drinkers. The typical patient being somewhere between 45 and 55 years of age, arriving with a two to three year history of smoking in college, and now presenting with a painless mass in the neck. That is found to be squamous cell or an identified primary in the tonsil or base of tongue, in association with a painless mass in the neck. These are almost entirely HPV 16 positive, and in fact, 60 to 70 percent of all tonsil or base of tongue cancers in this country are being found to be HPV 16 positive or one of the other bad prognostic or carcinogenic HPV types that are actually found in the current vaccine. 25% of head and neck cancer is oropharynx that we're going to be seeing, and this is an increasing percentage. And this increase has now been going on for about a decade, and it's about 2.5% per year of the patients developing oropharynx. So it's going to be fairly big and there's a large group of patients coming through. Beginning in the late 1990s, there were techniques developed to actually identify HPV-16 in tissues and these of course led to some of the testing in cervical cancer that's been utilized to moved out of the laboratory and actually there's a couple of laboratory companies that do testing now of tissues for you. And what happened during this period of time is that it became clear that HPV-16 was present in tonsillar and base of tongue cancers. There is some data suggests that it may infect oral tongue and larynx, but in point of fact, HPV-16 and cancer-causing HPVs are really almost exclusively found in the oropharynx, and some of the diagnoses outside of that area are really extension of the cancer anteriorly or posteriorly into the larynx or into the tonsil. It's really the specific tissue, and we don't know quite why. How is it transmitted? Well, it's transmitted by sexual contact or exchange of saliva or perhaps even oral digital contact as well. So presumably this is an oral causation? Yes, there's a relatively high level of suspicion that this is caused by orogenital sex, increased sexual intercourse, partners. So if you have more than 10 or more partners, 15 or more partners in your lifetime, your risk is four or five fold higher than somebody with less than five. And similarly, for orogenital sex, the risk increases at about six to about nine-fold greater than having no partners or a few partners. Mm
0: -hmm. These HPV cancers, are they biologically different, and do they respond
1: to therapy differently? They are biologically different than the smoking and drinking-related cancers, and quite significantly so. For example, there are a couple of proteins associated with cell cycle regulation that the genes from the HPV actually turn off... One of these is RB, and the other is p53. So, if you look at these tumors, they have elevated levels of proteins like p16, which affect RB, and p53 is normal and not mutated. So, they actually have a better prognosis than the smoking-related and alcohol-related cancers. And it looks like they probably respond better to direct therapy. They also some what recent type of therapy, radiation, and chemotherapy. Hmm. There also seems to be some data developing that they may be more proliferative. So one of the classic presentations is a very small primary and a very large neck node. There may also be a higher risk of distant metastases, albeit more sensitive to chemotherapy in this, although we're not sure yet. Now of the 40,000 cases, I guess roughly
0: a total of the whole head and neck group, you know, any guess about what fraction are HPV related?
1: Well, there are 11,000 oropharynx cases and about 70% of those are going to be HPV related. So that talks to about 20% of all head and neck cancer and an increasing demographic, so that percentage of head and neck cancer that's oropharynx and related HPV is actually increasing as we see this generation from the 60s and 70s reaching their 40, 50, and 60-year-old. Any
0: reason to think that, you know, looking at this and sort of the models that we have that, you know, in three or five or whatever number of years we might see an actually really a huge increase?
1: We suspect so. We don't know how much, but we think that it's not going to be like, you know, a plague per se, but it's clearly an epidemic taking place. And if you think in terms of 11,000 cases of oropharynx, this is actually equivalent to the number of advanced melanoma cases we see in this country. And so I think we really do need to have some increased research support in this area. Remember, HPV is a foreign protein and a foreign antigen. And if we're talking about this level of infection, we need to know a lot of things. We need to know, for example, what is the latency? Is this a reinfection? Do you have inactive virus and retain it for a long period of time? Do you periodically become infectious as a person carrying it? What is the carriage rate? How can you identify people who are susceptible? Because some people obviously get this and other people don't. It's carried in the mouth? We don't know. It could be carried in the mouth. It could be carried elsewhere. Certainly, once the cells become, the keratinocytes become infected, there must be some latency present as these cells become increasingly more malignant. Now, there are other HPV-related malignancies or neoplasms, not cancers, in the head and neck. There are nasal polyposis, which is caused by HPV6 and I believe 11, and there's laryngeal polyposis as well. So there are some non-cancer-causing but neoplastic-causing HPVs in the oropharynx as well. So there's a whole of kind of warty lesions that you can get.
0: It's interesting if you think about it from a public health perspective. I wonder how many deaths
1: we might be looking at in the oropharynx compared to, say, cervix. I wonder. I don't know the exact number, but the fact that these patients seem to be more responsive to treatment and they're younger means that we're going to be looking at some major risks from side effects of therapy. So if these patients are going to get intensive chemotherapy and radiation, they're going to be at high risk for dry mouth. Dental problems, speech and swallowing difficulties, aspiration pneumonia, particularly given the location, the base of tongue, the ability to avoid radiating parts of the mouth that are involved in swallowing is quite significant. And we have to remember that the risk of second cancers and other sequelae from radiation increases over time. And if these people are in their 40s and 50s, they have 30 or 40 years in which to develop something else. So we have to think anteriorly as to what this might constitute and really watch these patients. That's
0: interesting. Maybe you can kind of complete the overall picture in terms of what we're seeing in terms of this
1: disease and also stage of presentation. Yeah, most of these patients present with advanced stage and big nodal disease because they don't have internal oral symptoms. And you can basically put a lot of cancer into the neck without being aware that it's there. So people can have relatively bulky necks or even thin people can develop transient growth and shrinkage of these. And they may have no ear pain or difficulty swallowing because they're smaller primary tumors. So, most of these present with a fairly advanced disease. I think, the, as I said, the variety present with a fairly advanced stage. The other thing that's important is that the demographics are different. You know, these are not people who are heavy smokers and drinkers in general. And in fact, there's a reverse association, which is probably not causative in that the vast majority of them are non-smokers and non-drinkers. And we have some new data coming out, which will be published soon, that suggests, in fact, that there's no interaction between drinking and smoking in the development of the cancer. So there's a thought that perhaps if you smoke, you might activate the virus, create a carcinogenic background for it to grow in, but that doesn't seem to be the case.
0: Can you talk a little bit about some of the recent research developments that you think are most important for an oncologist to know about in this field? Well, I think the
1: biggest development has been the use of what are called targeted agents. We now see that cetuximab and EGFR antagonists are coming into the clinic in a big way. The radiation cetuximab data is intriguing. It's still difficult to substitute that for the traditional chemo radiotherapy program simply because there's only one good study, whereas there are multiple studies showing that cisplatinum is more effective than radiation alone as a radiation sensitizer. There is going to be, over the next three or four years, the integration of cetuximab into the chemotherapy and the chemo radiotherapy programs in a more robust fashion, which I think will be productive. Interestingly enough, at ASCO, The ERTC presented a study of platinum-5-FU and cetuximab versus platinum-5-FU alone for recurrent disease as first-line therapy, demonstrating a significant improvement in survival, a 35% improvement in survival from seven and a half months median to uh, 10 months median. So this is the first time ever in head and neck research that a combination of drugs was shown to be superior to any other combination for recurrent disease. That's because it's hard to demonstrate improvements in recurrent disease in general because once the cells become resistant, the patients pretty much pass away, and most of the therapies haven't been as robust. It's only when we get into these three drug regimens that we start to see, and particularly with a targeted non-cross-resistant drug like cetuximab, that we start to see an additive effect. Now... That study didn't address the issue as to whether you could give it sequentially and get the same survival advantage in palliative care. But it does tell us that in the induction setting where complete response is important in going forward with the radiation and in the induction setting prior, that this kind of combination might actually give us a leg up in terms of the responses we're seeing in cancers. And it's associated with a marginal increase in toxicity, which can be moderated by a reduction in some of the other more toxic drugs, particularly the 5 fluorouracil, perhaps.
0: We've been kind of frustrated trying to find predictors or response to a lot of agents, including cetuximab
1: in a bunch of tumors, particularly colon cancer. What about in head and neck? There's absolutely no indication that any marker will tell us what a patient will do with cetuximab. The best marker is the bedside test. If the patient develops a rash, then they're going to have a better response to any of the drugs that we've seen, although I'm not clear that that's as true with cetuximab as it is with gefitinib or tarceva. What about the oral TKIs? What do we know about this right now in head and neck? Well, we have some limited data. I think TARCEVA by itself is relatively inefficient. There is some data that suggests that it's fairly synergistic rather than simply additive with the taxanes and with cisplatinum. There was a paper from MD Anderson recently reported suggesting an increase in response rate. And what was intriguing about that paper was that the Phase two trial, and this was not a randomized trial, this was a Phase two trial that included docetaxel and cisplatinum plus tarceva, stopped the chemotherapy at about six cycles and then continued on with single-agent tarceva. That also happened, by the way, in the extreme trial in which platinum-5-FU and cetuximab were compared to platinum-5-FU. Again, the drugs were stopped at six cycles. And this still was associated with a maintained response so the progression-free survival looked very good. This means patients can get off the intensive therapies after a fairly brief course, and you know who's going to maintain stable disease. And that's the value of stability as a result of these targeted therapies. So I think that is a very intriguing result. And it will be very interesting to see how that plays out when we get into phase three trials comparing these drugs or even randomized phase twos.
0: So, an interesting looking at lung cancer in terms of the information that's come out in the last few years in terms of predictors of response to these agents' non-smoking status and the EGFR mutation.
1: Has that been looked at with head and neck? Yes, and there are no EGFR mutations except for a dilution mutant which is not associated with an enhanced response, in fact. How about correlation with smoking, although I don't know how many non-smokers you have. None whatsoever at the
0: moment. What about cases associated with HPV? Is that associated with outcome?
1: The HPV data is just too early, and there haven't been a lot of studies where HPV has been measured as part of the prognostic significance or prognostic indicators. We know that HPV positivity is correlated with a better survival, so we think it's probably the best prognostic indicator after stage that we have for patients with head and neck cancer. So we actually use it. We also, just so you know, we use it to identify unknown primaries in patients because it's almost exclusively oropharynx. So if we have a neck node and we can't identify a primary, and in order to identify an unknown primary, you do an FNA, If you identify squamous cells, then you do what's called an examination under anesthesia with a bilateral tonsillectomy and either directed or blind biopsies of the base of tongue. And if you have HPV status before you go in, you know you should look very carefully at the base of tongue, perhaps do a few more extra biopsies. And if it's HPV positive, even if we don't find a primary, we'll treat exclusively into the base of tongue and tonsils and take it off the nasopharynx and the anterior floor of mouth. And that's a big help for the patients. It reduces the dryness and the sequelae of the radiation. I just want to say one thing for the practitioners. I think the therapy for head and neck cancers changed dramatically. Not only is the demographic giving us a less socially damaged patient population with significant social problems like drinking and smoking, but we're also getting better at curing patients. And some of the new induction regimens like TPF have resulted in cure rates that are phenomenal. And today, as opposed to when I started 20 or 25 years ago, instead of curing 20% of patients with locally advanced disease, we're getting up to 60, 70, and 85% survival rates. So if a patient doesn't have comorbidities that significantly reduce our ability to deliver therapy, we can actually... Talk in terms of 75 and 85 percent cure rates. And that's a phenomenal difference. And the practitioner has to be aware when they see a patient who's in their 40s or 50s or 60s and doesn't have comorbid illnesses that we have the capability of giving them another 20 years of life. And that's an important factor.
0: What fraction of patients present with advanced disease, metastasis, or locally inoperable?
1: Well, again, we consider inoperable one of the treatment issues when we treat patients. So we're actually doing very well with inoperable patients in terms of induction chemotherapy and chemotherapy. About 5% of patients will present with distant metastases initially, and about another 10% will present in an inoperable setting, 10 to 15%. That's principally patients with large neck nodes involving the carotid or invasion of the base of skull with their primary tumors. In the European randomized phase 3 trial of TPF versus PF, presented last year by Reminar at the ASCO, the survival was around 30 to 35 percent in that population of patients with induction plus chemo RT. The survival in the ARTOG intergroup 0126 trial in a similar population was about 37 percent. With the combination of induction plus chemo-RT, which we have in the sequential treatment plan, it looks like our overall survival rate is going to be around 50 to 55% of the population of unresectable, massive-volume patients. But I think it's actually going to turn out to be a bit better. If your practice includes people with comorbidities, it'll be lower. If it includes people who can tolerate the therapy, again, these 40- and 50-year-old patients, Particularly the oropharynx cases, I think we're going to see 75 to 85 percent cure rates there. Any role for surgery of metastatic
0: disease given how much more effective we are now with local therapy?
1: Yeah, I think that there's about a 20 percent cure rate for patients who present with a single isolated lung metastasis. Now, that's not a large group of patients, but we will operate on a person with a small metastasis. That's why we do surveillance pretty regularly in patients, at least in the first two years. You can also salvage patients who recur locally in particular sites. So patients who have a recurrence in the larynx, the piriform sinus, or in the neck, or the floor of mouth and frontal portions of the oral cavity can be salvaged. And the salvage rates are between 30 and 50% for those patients, depending on how big it is when it's identified. So if they're operable, it's a 30% cure rate. If they're not operable, then we actually do re-irradiation for some of those patients. And it looks like we can get 20% long-term survival. It's not clear that that's a cure. But once you begin to get into those kinds of salvage procedures, the surgery is a better treatment. We also use surgery principally for, in terms of organ preservation, for anterior lesions. That's lesions in the floor of mouth, the anterior tongue, because the surgeons are extremely good at reconstructing this area in a functional manner. And the chemotherapy actually is less effective in oral cavity cancer than it is in those more posterior lesions in the tonsil, base of tongue, larynx, and piriform sinus. So. From a purely practical and also a biologic point of view, it looks like there are differences in different sites in the head and neck.
0: How much variation is there in terms of the quality of the surgery that's done on these patients, and how can a, a patient or doc in practice decide whether or not maybe the surgery should be done in a tertiary center instead of, as opposed to a community setting?
1: I feel that while every surgeon would like to feel like they can do all the surgery that they do, actually I think it's very impractical for community surgeons that aren't doing lots of head and neck to do these procedures. They have problems with where the margins are, the reconstructions can be difficult, and particularly oral surgeons who aren't doing a lot of cancer will do biopsies that they think are excisional, and there will be residual positive margins in small tumors and they become a big problem for us. So we really suggest that the surgeons that do these surgeries be fairly experienced and be doing a fair number of cases a year and not simply an odd case here or there. Also I think the community physician should recognize that the surgeon is really focused on the operations that they do and these patients require a lot of monitoring and further care that has to be done in a kind of combined modality setting particularly when they get the more aggressive therapies. They have a lot of medical problems associated with that, and the radiation oncologist, the surgeon, and the medical oncologist really need to work together and be on the same page, both to coordinate the care and to manage the late side
0: effects. Same question in terms of radonx. How much of a difference in quality is there, do you think, in terms of the type of radiation therapy that's delivered to these patients? And how much of the advance that you mentioned do you think is from the quality of radiation as opposed to the
1: chemotherapy? Well, I think there's been a big advance in the quality of radiation. In the 70s, much of the radiation was given as once a day. It was given with a break in the middle of it. Today, the radiation oncologists give the radiation without stopping. So the patient gets more dose and they get it in a continuous fashion. I think that's increased the local regional control rate and that there's some data to support that, fairly robust data. It hasn't necessarily improved survival because there's still distant metastases and the results are a small percentage, although they're significant there for a local regional control, it ends up being a smaller percentage for survival because of other factors. I think most community oncologists, radiation oncologists, actually treat a fair number of head and neck cancer because they're kind of the apex of the pyramid of referral for that. And they like treating it because it's a very satisfying therapy. It involves a lot of technique. But that being said, the newer IMRT techniques are really quite operator dependent, and there's a huge learning curve with them. And the community oncologists may not be as able to devote the kind of time required to put in planning with IMRT and also the adjustments that have to be taking place, at least now, as the IMRT is given, because the IMRT is intensity-modulated radiation therapy. And what this allows the radiation oncologist to do is to literally paint areas of the body with more radiation or less. So... One of the big side effects, of course, of radiation therapy is an extremely dry mouth, and that leads to dental failure, osteoradionecrosis, increased swallowing dysfunction, and even esophageal stenosis can be aggravated by the lack of saliva. So if you can focus the beam and avoid radiating one of the salivary glands, the major parotid salivary glands, then the patient ends up with more of a wet mouth, more ability to swallow, more ability to get through the radiation, more ability to get drier foods down, and it's a big plus. So intensity modulated radiation is becoming a standard of care. And the difficulty with IMRT is it's highly precision oriented. And if you undertreat an area which is at risk for a recurrence, you can have recurrences in these areas. And not only that, but the fields change over time because the patient's tumors shrink and the patient gets a little bit more movement or a little bit more swelling under the mask where they're kind of bolted to the table and it becomes increasingly more difficult towards the end of the therapy to actually get the right dosing in. And in addition, because some of the dosing still has to be put someplace in the body, it doesn't disappear just because you move it around. It actually exits in the skin or in the anterior floor of mouth, the radiation. You can get unusual areas that have high hot spots. So I think the community oncologists probably don't do enough of this or can devote the kind of time to it that would allow them to be able to be experts in the head and neck. And that's because there's so many critical structures. I mean, the spinal cord is right next to where many of these tumors are, the swallowing mechanisms, the at-risk lymph node bearing areas, many of the cranial nerves. So it's quite difficult for them. Can you
0: review some of the key clinical trials that have looked at both chemotherapy as well as cetuximab in the neoadjuvant setting and sort of where that whole thing is heading in terms of the next generation of studies? Well
1: I think the neoadjuvant setting is just undergoing an evolution at the present time. We've just established, I think, for the first time, that a three drug regimen, Taxotere platinum and five FU is superior to platinum five FU and has resulted in improved survival compared to platinum five FU, which has showed improved survival compared to radiation or surgery. There are three trials looking at Taxotere Platinum and 5-FU. One trial is the Calais trial, which was reported in 2006 in ASCO. It's a larynx preservation trial for larynx and piriform sinus cancers. And the TPF data in that trial demonstrated a significant improvement in laryngeal preservation in patients treated with three cycles of TPF compared to three cycles of PF followed by radiation. There may be, although it's not clear at this time, a survival advantage as well. However, that will depend on further analysis of the data as the data matures. The Reminar trial is a European trial done by the ERTC, published in ASCO 2006 also. And that compared a four-cycle regimen of TPF to four cycles of PF in unresectable disease followed by radiation therapy. They showed about a 30% reduction in mortality in the TPF arm, and an improvement in both progression-free and overall survival, as well as median survival, with less toxicity. In fact, the Calais study also showed less toxicity with the TPF arm, because there's a reduced dose of 5-FU, so there's reduced mucositis in this. So not only are these drugs, the combinations, better than the traditional treatment that's been the gold standard of induction, but they are also less toxic. And that's a big plus for oncologists treating these patients as well as the patients themselves. Then the third trial is a trial that we performed in North America. It was actually an international trial which included both resectable and unresectable disease. And in this trial, we gave three cycles of TPF with a slightly more aggressive TPF regimen and compared that to PF. And that was followed by concurrent chemoreotherapy with bolus carboplatinum once a week. We chose to do that to reduce the toxicity of the cis that had been used in the past, improve the outcomes in terms of neurotoxicity, uh, dehydration, all of which lead to worse toxicity and actually reduced dose density for patients during radiation. We saw a 30% reduction in mortality. Our three-year survival rate was 62% in the TPF arm versus 48% in the PF arm. In our own data, the PF followed by chemoRT actually looked just like many of our old trials with TPF, where we did not include a chemoradiotherapy arm. So, by adding chemoradiotherapy to PF, we actually increased the cure rate, we think, compared to what we would have seen. It's speculation, it's not really science. But if we look at the TPF fall by chemoreotherapy you could see that the survival was fifteen to twenty percent better, absolute fifteen to twenty percent better in the TPF fall by chemoreotherapy. So what you do by following induction with chemoreotherapy is you add a ten to fifteen percent improvement in local regional control compared to what you would have gotten with the chemoreotherapy with the chemotherapy alone. What do we know about carbo versus cis in head and neck? Well, for induction chemotherapy, carboplatinum is inferior. It doesn't give you the same systemic effects on cancer that the cisplatinum does. It's just like testicular cancer. You really can't substitute carboplatinum unless you have a good reason in terms of dosing for the patient. When you give carboplatinum versus cisplatinum with radiation, you're dealing with a different toxicity profile, which is where you balance getting drug in because of toxicity versus efficacy systemically. Now, most of the chemotherapy trials with cisplatinum have shown no impact on systemic disease. So if you're using it purely as a radiation sensitizer, it's pretty much equivalent to cisplatinum. And in fact, today, published within the last two weeks, there's a randomized trial in nasopharynx that was done out of Asia, published in the European Journal of Cancer, which compared bolus is platinum every three weeks, which is the North American standard and the standard of care for nasopharynx, to a weekly carboplatinum with the same AUC that we use. And it showed actually equivalent survival and a substantial improvement in toxicity profile in the carboplatinum group. In fact, there was a 50% reduction in esophageal stenosis and stomach tube dependence in the carboplatinum group compared to the cisplatinum group, and that's because when the cisplatinum patients get treated, they end up not being able to eat because of the nausea, they have more salt wasting, they actually had more hospitalizations and more toxic mucositis because they couldn't stay hydrated. There's clearly an advantage during chemo radiotherapy to give CARBO
0: Can you talk about right now the way you approach these patients in
1: a non-protocol situation? Well, we have our biases. There are places that would be biased towards chemo radiotherapy. I'm sure if you went to some of the very famous cancer centers, depending on whether you saw the radiation oncologist or the medical oncologist, you would hear about chemo radiotherapy or induction chemotherapy followed by chemo radiotherapy. There are no randomized trials that compare sequential therapy, which is induction plus chemoradiotherapy, or induction and, chemo- and radiation therapy to chemoradiotherapy robustly. There are a few that compared it with PF, but not in the modern TPF age. So the current generation of trials that are ongoing in Europe and the United States are comparisons of induction plus chemoradiotherapy to chemoradiotherapy alone. There are actually no trials comparing induction followed by radiation to chemotherapy alone, because that question's been answered in a few trials that demonstrate equivalence between the two. Our next generation, which will go beyond this, will be to add the targeted agents. So we are currently doing phase 1-2 trials with TPF plus cetuximab and TPF plus panitumumab, both egfr Antibodies and what's the schedule that you're looking at? Well, with cetuximab, we're looking at a weekly schedule, with and that's TPL. during the chemo radiation. During the induction chemo and also during the chemo radiotherapy, we'll be looking at it there as well. With panitumumab, we're taking a slightly different track. We've added panitumumab to carbotaxol in radiation in patients, and so we have a triple drug chemo RT program, and that's for intermediate stage disease patients. That's our current trial, and there are others looking at it, similar regimens in Europe. PF plus or minus cetuximab. We're looking also with that at TPF plus panatumumab, so it's panatumumab, PTPF we call it. Those trials are just beginning, and we hope to have some answers about how to do them so that we can begin the next generation of phase three trials depending on what results we see from the current generation of phase three trials that are ongoing.
0: What do we know about panitumumab versus cetuximab in head and neck? Nothing at the moment. There's been a lot of debate about the issue of infusion reactions in colon cancer, panitumumab versus cetuximab, and the suggestion that maybe it's geographic. What
1: do we know about this issue in head and neck? Well, I don't think we've seen much in head and neck in terms of understanding that. Our experience with panitumumab in a very small number of patients in head and neck has been no transfusion or infusion reactions. How about cetuximab? I've had a few. I've had a few patients I've had to take off study. I haven't treated enough patients with panitumumab to get a sense of how bad the rash is. I've had a few patients who've had to come off treatment in the palliative setting with cetuximab for rash, and also one or two in the curative setting.
0: So in terms of your non-protocol approach, patients not eligible or can't go into a study, how do you approach these patients right now? Well, if
1: a patient has advanced disease with a large N2 neck or an N3 neck, or they have multiple lymph nodes positive, or they have a T4 tumor or they have some combination that really gives them a lot of bulk disease, we would treat that patient with induction chemotherapy with TPF followed by chemo radiotherapy. And we would adjust the chemo radiotherapy on a, what we call a risk-based assessment. So if a patient has a complete response. During the induction phase, we would give them carboplatinum and radiation. If they have a partial response, they have residual neck adenopathy, they have an incomplete response in the primary site, we would then give them carboplatinum, taxol, and radiation. So we would ramp up the intensity of the chemoradiotherapy and also the side effect profile for those patients we felt were at greater risk for recurrence. Any situation where you throw in cetuximab? Well, we would do that probably in a patient who had a progressive disease if they were off study, simply because that's such a bad prognosis that we're willing to do just about anything in that patient. And adding cetuximab in that situation is probably going to be somewhat helpful. There are a few patients that we saw in the TPF trial who had progressive disease to either PF or TPF, in whom we added carboradiation and saw complete control. So chemotherapy can rescue non-responders because it is a non-cross-resistant type of treatment. The taxanes particularly are more effective when a patient has failed chemotherapy up front. There's clear evidence in animal models that the resistance to a taxane in the upfront setting is not echoed by an increase in radiation resistance.
0: Young patient grabs you by the lapel, says, I'll pay for the therapy, doesn't matter, I want the best possible chance I have, would you consider Cetuximab?
1: I certainly would consider it. Have you done it? I've done it in patients who've had what I consider really poor responses. I wouldn't do it up front. It's not clear to me that it's actually necessary at this point. What I have done is we have done in the re-irradiation setting, where, you know, you really want to throw the kitchen sink at these patients but kind of hold the toxicity as much as possible. We threw Cetuximab in without qualm, No question at all. We thought it was worth doing it. Why not? These patients have terrible prognosis. So we gave them carboplatin, Taxol, Cetuximab, and re irradiation for local regional control. And we have a few long term survivors, so we thought that was a pretty reasonable treatment, but it's daunting. I mean, these people are quite ill during the therapy.
0: What about upfront in patients with poor performance
1: status? You may be kind of reluctant to give them chemotherapy. Yeah, I will use cetuximab as a single agent. I'll give you an example. I had an eighty-five-year-old gentleman who, you know, clearly was going to be very fragile. He had a T3 larynx and had had a tracheostomy, and my radiation oncologist and surgeon really wanted me to treat this guy for organ preservation, although I had my doubts. You know, when you get up into the late eighties and early nineties, you may look good as a person, but you're fragile. You know, an event can really set you back, and the ability to rehabilitate is very important. So I treated this patient with the combination of seduximab and carboplatin, and then I added a taxane a little bit later. But I think that it's probably a little bit of overtreatment. If you look at the data from the radiation trial Bonner's trial from the New England Journal, it suggests that there was not a lot of benefit in the older patients as a single agent. There was also not a lot of benefit in hypopharynx and larynx, and it was not a lot of benefit with once-a-day radiation. Really, the most benefited group of patients were those patients with oropharynx cancer where we know that there's some sensitivity, and those patients who had accelerated fractionation, which adds a lot to toxicity. It's not any different with the cetuximab versus not, but there's a high rate of esophageal stenosis with hyperfraction radiation as opposed to once-a-day radiation, so you don't buy a reduction in toxicity from the basic therapy by adding cetuximab, but you may be able to get a little bit more oomph with the same toxicity. Whether you can add a drug to that or not is another question. And that, I think, that question's out. I would do that for a patient, I would add carboplatinum to the chemotherapy. I think that's not the best drug to add. I I think a taxane would be better, but with radiation, a taxane is going to add a lot of toxicity to these patients.
0: What about the patient who's younger but has comorbidities, and particularly patients maybe with poor social situations, alcoholism, tobacco,
1: et cetera? How does TPF fit in in those kinds of patients? Well, I think if a patient comes in with significant psychosocial problems, and I like to talk about a patient who's let the tumor grow so much that their speech is significantly impaired. It's not somebody who's developed a hot potato voice, and that's what brought them in. It's somebody with a floor of mouth cancer where the tongue's bound down and the tumor's kind of visible or the teeth are falling out because of that. These are people who tend to be just like neglect breast cancers or neglecting themselves. They are not going to be able to be compliant with a very effective regimen. We would certainly give them the benefit of the doubt and try and treat them aggressively, but we'd be very quick to reduce the therapy, dumb it down, in terms of the amount of drugs so that they're not going to experience toxicity. And of course, if they're not going to be compliant with rehabilitation, you know, if I have a curative option which involves an immediate surgical procedure followed by radiation, I would rather do that. So laryngectomy, remember, laryngectomy is not a terrible procedure. People recover their voice. They recover it through uh, certain kinds of procedures or devices, and they can eat, which you can't do if you have a frozen larynx from radiation and you can't rehabilitate it. If you have a frozen larynx, a person will develop aspiration pneumonia, and those people actually die. They die from chronic lung disease and chronic pneumonias. got to ask you what a hot potato voice is. You start talking like you just ate a hot potato. What's going on anatomically? Anatomically, the tumor has grown so that it's touching the back of the soft palate and is blocking air going past the soft palate, so it sounds like a hot potato.
0: Interesting. What do you see or what is seen in terms of side effects and toxicity to the TPF regimen? Well, I think the principal
1: toxicity to TPF is acute, profound neutropenia. So we gave people prophylactic antibiotics during that 10-day period. And while we had much more neutropenia than with PF, it was quite brief. PF neutropenia starts around day 10 and can last as long as day 25 or 28, and it inhibits the ability to give subsequent courses of chemotherapy, whereas the taxane mediated neutropenias and TPF occur between days 6 and day 12, completely resolve in the second week, at the end of the second week, and are only minimally associated when you give prophylaxis with infection. In fact, they occur so quickly that there's really hardly any role for thinking even in terms of GCSF or other growth factors for patients because once they finish the chemotherapy, they're already neutropenic and the recovery is very rapid. And this was manifested by a significant number of treatment delays in the PF arm compared to TPF in our study and also by a dose reduction above about 10% in PF compared to TPF. So, the major toxicity is a kind of a laboratory low white count which results in some fatigue in the patient, a loss of appetite, and some weight loss. The other major side effect that the patient 's experiencing are TPF, the North American TPF with more aggressive 5-FU is mucositis. There's no question that these patients have fairly significant mucositis. About a third of them will have grade 3 mucositis. They won't be able to eat and may not even be able to drink for a couple of days. And management really involves narcotics, lidocaine, benadryl, and Malox solutions for coating, and a really clear message to the patient that they need to hydrate They need to really manage their pain medication and continue to swallow. It's quite transient, only lasts about five days with TPF, and then they recover. And we have a period of time right after that where the patient has lost four or five or eight pounds during that acute phase of neutropenic fatigue, and mucositis now has what we call a porking up period, where they kind of begin to eat a lot. They gain all the weight back, and they actually feel pretty good. And of course, the tumors regress dramatically. So they feel great. They come in, and their tumors are you know, 50% reduced or almost entirely gone, and it gives them a big oomph for the next couple of cycles.
0: Which antibiotic do you use, or antibiotics, and
1: when exactly do you give it? Well, we give ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. If the patient's allergic, you can substitute another one. I'd rely on infectious disease to talk with you about that. But we give 10 days, and we start at the completion of the 5-FU infusion, which is the fifth day. So they get once a day or twice a day antibiotics. What about capecitabine? I'm not convinced that capecitabine is better than 5-FU for head and neck cancer at this point. You know, there are clear indications that it works in a variety of other diseases and might actually be better than 5-fluorouracil, but I haven't seen any data supporting it. And the other factor, of course, is that it's more of a prolonged therapy and we're trying to kind of reduce the time frame of the exposure to treatment in these patients to a more compact period. We don't want them to be continuously taking treatment if we can avoid that.
0: What are some of the other research strategies that are being looked at, and particularly how are the TKIs
1: fitting in this picture? Well, I think a lot of the research groups are looking at combining the TKIs with what are called traditional cytotoxic agents. Now, we have to remember that some of our traditional treatments, the anti-metabolites, for example, are very much like targeted therapies. They're anti-enzymes and work as such. So the targeted therapies should be viewed, I think, as chemotherapeutic agents. And the question is, are they going to be synergistic? Are they going to be additive the term cytostasis, which means you know, stable disease, is really, I think, kind of a misnomer. They may stop some of the growth of these, they may inhibit proliferation, but they may also inhibit DNA repair, and I think that's one of the mechanisms that results in synergy when you combine them with drugs like Taxotere, Cisplatinum, and 5-fluorouracil. What about Bevacizumab and other anti-angiogenic agents? There's some intriguing data from the University of Chicago that suggests the combination of bevazizumab and tarceva is actually more active than either drug alone. The jury's out about whether these add to any of our chemotherapy agents at the present time. I think the MD Anderson data with cisplatinum and docetaxel and tarceva is very intriguing and potentially positive. They did a phase two trial, which is relatively mature, where they gave cisplatinum and docetaxel at a relatively high dose, 75 and 75 milligrams per meter squared for each. And they gave Tarceva at 150 milligrams daily. Patients received essentially six cycles of treatment if they continued to respond, and then went on to maintenance Tarceva until they had progressive disease or there was a reason to stop based on toxicity. And they had almost a 50% one-year survival. That's a pretty good survival in recurrent disease. Now, these are highly selected patients. This is a center. People had to get there. So, of course, this is going to be the best of the best. But the fact is that they stopped treatment. They probably had a prolonged disease-free or progression-free period for these patients. And that's pretty impressive. And that suggests to me that this might have been a very active combination. I personally wouldn't use Tarsiva as a single agent because I don't think that its activity level is that high. But in synergy and combination, it might prove to be highly effective.
0: What about Tarceva plus either Cetuximab or
1: Panitumumab? There is some suggestion that you can rescue patients who failed either of those drugs with one of the others. What about combining them? I think that's interesting. Total EGFR blockade. I certainly think that the mechanism of action of Cetuximab may be different. And there are patients in whom uh, failure with one results in a response to the other. I would like to see some studies looking at that. Going back to bevacizumab, what do we know about Bev and head and neck? I don't think we have a lot of data with combinations. I think those trials are ongoing. I know the University of Chicago is doing one with chemo and using it as a sensitizer, and it looks interesting. I know that there are other groups that are combining it with chemotherapy.
0: What about metastatic disease and palliative therapy? What's sort of your algorithm for approaching
1: those patients? Well, of course, our first choice is a study, if we have one. We have several studies that we're doing that involve bevazizumab, tarceva, zactima, docetaxel in combinations. So we're very interested in looking at these new drugs in that setting. For a patient who doesn't want to study, has a reasonable performance status, I usually use a combination of carboplatinum, 5-FU, and leucovorin weekly. And the reason that I do that is that it's relatively non-toxic. It's weekly therapy, and you can adjust the dosing based on the patient's toxicity profile, and it gives you about a 30 to 40% response rate. As a weekly therapy, it's relatively good treatment. Sometimes, and again, it depends on the patient, I'll use a Taxane first, because I think once you fail carbo it's hard to see good responses to a Taxane, but I'll use a Taxane first as a single agent. Again, I'll give it weekly. Which one? I use either Taxotere or Taxol. It really depends on what day it is. I'm using about between 35 and 45 milligrams per meter squared of docetaxel, and there are some studies showing that that's relatively non-toxic and effective. And then for taxol, I prefer to use around 60. I do not feel comfortable getting neurotoxicity in these patients if they have a response. I use somewhere between 60 and 80 milligrams per meter squared per week. What about cetuximab in the palliative setting? I choose to use Cetuximab as my last line of therapy. And the reason that I do that is that the data from the Cisplatinum study by Burtness, where they randomized patients to Cetuximab plus Cisplatinum versus Cisplatinum alone, suggested, as did the TRIGO data that looked at it in the platinum failures, that Cetuximab is additive and that there's no resistance to it. So if you failed a lot of other therapies, I think you're still going to see a 10 to 14 percent response rate to cetuximab and stabilization in another group of patients. So I save it as my last line therapy in patients, and I don't wait till they have a poor performance status. You know, if they fail, if they say, for example, get a dose of taxol, 45 milligrams per meter squared, for, you know, three or four months, then I give them Carbo 5FU, Lucavorn, for however long that works, perhaps another three months, then sometimes I'll do methotrexate. Even been blasting has had a small but significant response rate or a low-dose infusional 5-FU. I've even tried capecitabine in this setting without much responses in that setting. Then I will go to, if I don't have a research study that they're eligible for, I'll go to cetuximab for them. Cetuximab alone? Yes, cetuximab alone. Have you and seen I, any responses? Oh, yes. I see responses in patients. I have a patient right now who's on cetuximab last line, and his tumor's healing in his neck, and it's very gratifying.
0: That's interesting. How long has he been under treatment?
1: He's got about seven or eight weeks right now. But he's having a response? He's having a response. So I think if you have had neck cancer that's recurrent, that one of the drugs you should see besides a platinum, if you can tolerate it, is an anti-EGF drug. Cetuximab, I would prefer to Tarsiva. I don't know how panitumumab will stack up. I would really like to get gefitinib back on the market for head and neck cancer. I mean, that was a drug in which we saw responses. Any reason to think that'd be more effective or in any way better clinically than erlotinib? I don't know. The phase two data was better. We did a trial with gefitinib where we added celecoxib to it. and We had a 20% response rate. We had patients throw away their crutches and, hmm. and walk out of the clinic. It was gratifying. They were brief. They were six months, but that was a low toxicity study. And unfortunately, Selcoxib turned out to have cardiac side effects, and the whole viox issue came up. And then the Jafitinib problems with getting it approved and the lung studies really stopped the drug cold for head and neck development. Can you talk a little bit about
0: sort of the spectrum of what you see in terms of end-stage disease? Unfortunately, there are still, what, I guess, 11,000 deaths from this disease. Yeah. What are the spectrum of clinical issues that occur in that setting? Any sort of pearls you have about management, and where does hospice fit
1: in? Well, I think a couple of things. First, the reputation of head and neck for being a difficult disease to treat not only devolves from the population that we manage that is changing now, so we're seeing this younger, more effective group of individuals into treatment, but it also evolves from the pattern of recurrence, which was primarily local-regional. So you would have patients who not only had very debilitating and morbid surgery but then had local-regional recurrences with large kind of fungating tumors. So that presentation for recurrent disease is actually far less than we've seen before. We have very few patients now who actually have massive necrotic and really odorous recurrences in the neck. And we have patients now who have some distant metastases, some local regional recurrences, frequently primary site as opposed to nodal metastases. And so the presentation's quite different. We also are curing so many more patients in our own clinic that we can't support our phase two trials because we don't have recurrences. So I think that is a manifestation of both the younger age group, the more effective therapies and the kind of combined modality treatment and team approach that we have. For those patients who come to us with recurrent disease, for the elderly patients who we see who have had to have reduced therapy and then are at risk for recurrence, we have these therapies that we can give. We have the platinums, we have 5-fluorouracil, we have the taxanes, and we have the EGF receptor inhibitors. And we use all of these judiciously and directed at palliation to avoid toxicity in these individuals. When the patient gets to the point where they're having a lot of symptoms and problems and they've run out of drugs, we really have conversations with them about what they want to do. And it's very hard when a patient says to you, I want to be treated, I want every chance I can have. To rob them of hope is just a terrible thing, particularly in their last days. So generally the patient knows and you have a kind of understanding that they're dying, but they want you to do something. So... We will try methotrexate, Olympta, you know, any of a variety of drugs and we cast around and occasionally you'll be lucky and find something that will have a remarkable response. And if your patient is very good about it and understands the circumstance and is emotionally ready, having the hospice conversation with them is extremely important and also preparing the rest of the family as we go through this. part of the art of, of that medical oncologists are involved in, and I think more so perhaps than radiation oncologists or surgical oncologists, because we see the end-of-life issues with these patients, and they really don't to the extent that we do. We have to have these conversations with the patients and their families and kind of prepare them emotionally and slowly as we get to that point. Now, is the palliative problem usually local? Currently, we've had both we're seeing both distant metastases and local regional occurrences. And usually our local regional failures tend to be internal. Are we actually seeing drops
0: in mortality or are you seeing it in your center or are we seeing it nationally?
1: Well, you know, I've been in the same place on and off for about 25 years. When we started out, we had a you know, 30% long-term survival. We have, our clinic is so full right now with survivors that we have to find a clinic to send them to. So we have a survivor's clinic that we're working with that's been supported in part by the Lance Armstrong Group at our center, who are now taking on these patients. Because what happens is they have problems. They have dry mouths, they eat fatty foods because it's easier, so they have risk for heart disease. Their blood pressure, which disappears during therapy because they have vascular issues from the platinums and their weight loss from the radiation come back as they become more robust and we need people to manage these and the primary care doctors don't really want to take care of them because they have a cancer issue and they have specific problems related to the cancer the dry mouth the dental issues the fibrosis and scarring all of which require physical therapy dental care so we've got a survivor's clinic going where we're going to develop algorithms to take care of these patients but we're seeing a huge number of people and they come back what about nationally what's happening mortality rates I think nationally we're seeing an improvement in survival, but it, again, nationally what happens is you see the broad spectrum of head and neck cancer. And so although we're seeing about a 20% of our cases the oropharynx good prognosis patients, you still have people who get cancer from chewing tobacco, smoking, other comorbidities. So you're seeing about a 3 to 5% improvement in the last decade in overall survival. That translates into a lot of patients. But it's actually increasing, I think, in general. I think we're going to see a big lump of survivorship improvement in the next five years just based on the number of oropharynx cases coming through.
0: Anything going on in terms of prevention or chemo prevention in these survivors?
1: Well, that is a very sore point. We would love to have a drug that works. We did a study with celcoxib that suggested some activity. But you can't give a preventive in long-term survivors that has any kind of significant mortality or morbidity associated with it. You have to remember, if patients are living 20 years, that's a big problem. Perhaps the HPV vaccine might be important to the HPV patients. Perhaps... Once they have it? We don't know. We yeah. don't know if they're at risk for a second cancer in the site or a second type of cancer associated with HPV. But,
0: I mean, would you expect the vaccine to
1: be able to sterilize it? No, I wouldn't. What would the, it be doing? We don't think it would sterilize them, but it might prevent reinfection. Hmm. Well, I see. Uh, so, but we don't know. So there are lots of questions that can be asked about what to do. For one thing, with the HPV patients, should we vaccinate their spouses? Hmm. There's an increased risk of tonsillar cancer in spouses of patients with tonsillar cancer, which is undoubtedly due in part to shared smoking, but also to possibly shared virus. Do we
0: know what happens when you give the vaccine to somebody who's already infected?
1: I don't think it has much impact on already infected individuals. This is part of understanding the whole pathogenesis of the disease. You know, what is the latency? Is there reinfection? Does the virus persist? I mean, we live with Epstein-Barr virus all of our lives, and yet only a small fraction of people get nasopharynx cancer, which is directly caused by Epstein-Barr virus. So there are persistent viruses in our system, herpes simplex, for example, and zoster, all of which have manifestations of disease in us, but don't necessarily get sterilized. Is there a way to actually test? I mean, can you do oral swabs or do you need to actually biopsy? I think that data is controversial with regard to oral swabs. There are some groups that have looked at oral swabs that have success in our own program. We've done oral swabs and saliva tests in people with known HPV positive tumors and not being able to detect the HPV in that solution. So there is an antibody test that can tell you whether you're at risk. That antibody test is not available on the market. It's E6 and E7 antibodies to these are proteins that are internal to the virus. If you carry antibodies to E6 and E7, HPV-16, you have about a 30-fold increased risk of head and neck cancer. But whether that predicts risk or not is another question. So, you know, monitoring a group of people, seeing who develops those antibodies, and seeing if you have an increased risk, that's a whole different kind of study. And you have to remember that there is no company that's going to do a study or support that. This all has to be supported by the kind of non-pharmaceutical government or charitable organizations that have supported this kind of basic research in the past. Of course, that funding is not so optimal right now. That's correct. And once you identify the risk, once you identify a market opportunity, then pharmaceutical firms come in and make it affordable for people to actually get in there and get the test.